I am your host, Raquel Ark, an American podcasting from Germany, and this is Listen In. Join this series of conversations with inspiring scientists, leaders, and authors about listening as a surprising superpower that is not always as easy as it seems. Believe me, I know, and I've been learning and will continue to learn, and I hope that this podcast will help you find practical ways to help others listen better while you become better at leading people, catalyzing collaboration, transforming conflict, building trust and engagement. And I'll tell you, when really good listening happens, then the entire group, including you, can feel energized and inspired. So sit back and enjoy listening beyond what we typically think of. I get a lot of questions from leaders about how to engage teams and communicate effectively when working remote. That's why I'm really excited about this episode. Bestseller author, managing remote teams, and fellow podcaster Luke Shermer shares what he does to help remote teams achieve success and why facilitating meetings as workshops is important to help teams listen to each other. He also gives tips on how to engage introverts who work in their second language so that the value they bring is not lost. Luke has managed or participated in remote-only teams for almost a decade and has led teams building software or running marketing and sales. Most recently, he led a program of approximately 30 people distributed across 13 time zones and eight different locations. Phew, sounds exhausting, but he did it and he'll share his experience with you. I hope our conversation helps you consider listening in ways that may surprise you. Enjoy listening in. Welcome to the Listen In podcast, Luke. It's really great to have you here. In a few moments, we will be diving into your book about managing remote teams. And I'm really excited about our conversation and the direction that we might take in our time together. To get started, though, I would love to know when you first started to notice the power of listening, whether it worked or it didn't. The first moment where I really got interested in listening, I think, was just, you know, playing guitar growing up, that kind of thing. But yeah, I think, you know, music was kind of window into an emotional state over time. That's kind of carried through, I guess, and uh, like in terms of, you know, continuing to listen to music, but also thinking of listening as paying attention to how kind of emotions evolve over time, I guess. Um, and yeah that that's probably the the starting point i mean i guess i felt the need to be heard and understood myself uh, as a, as an immigrant kid <laughs> growing up somewhat bookish introvert i guess but yeah i mean i definitely noticed that it just it feels great to listen to definitely and it is a is a way of communicating respect for what someone saying, uh, in addition to making them just feel good about it. I love these answers because, um, it shows how there's so many different ways how we're influenced by listening and one being, you know, something that's not necessarily a person, but really impacts, you know, the guitar and playing the guitar. But then you also mentioned that probably being a, an immigrant child, that that influenced your awareness of listening or not being listened to. Can you give me an example of what you remember um, from a child's perspective, jumping back to that time, the so the full context was I was a Polish kid who moved to kind of the suburbs of Philadelphia, kind of an Italian Irish neighborhood, and we were there largely because at the time uh, we were kind of forced to stay in the U.S. because there was martial law in Poland, so the uh, the army was turned on the people, <laughs> more or less. So it, there was nothing to go back to. So we kind of inadvertently had become immigrants. I think it was meant to be more of a shorter stay because my dad was uh, doing some, uh, was doing a PhD and we were kind of visiting. And, and yeah, that was that was kind of the, the original plan. Yeah, I, I think in terms of listening specifically, I, I think it, it was closely tied to wanting to fit in, I think. You wrote a book called Managing Remote Teams. And this is, there are two parts about this, probably companies who either want to go remote or companies who are shifting, forced to having 
to run things remote because of the pandemic. Um, what was the spark towards towards your book? And also, you have a podcast about this topic. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, the spark was just largely the fact that I'd been working kind of in a technology context remotely for close to a decade, both as a team member and kind of as a team lead and kind of in different roles at one company at the time. When the whole thing started, say in March-ish of 2020, it seemed like most of the conversation around remote work was just focused on, you know, 37 different tools that let you do, I don't know, messaging online or something. Um, And it wasn't really getting at what felt like to me as the as the key questions that people needed to be asking themselves yeah and that probably eventually they would need to start asking themselves so I, yeah i think the book was just an attempt to step back at my own experience and try to pull out what it is that i'd done that worked in the past for me and then also compare that to you know what was going on for others what was in academic research and putting it all together into something coherent about like the the unique things about working remotely with teams in a team setting basically which is the really important way of working certainly for software but i think in many in many areas um a lot of things are actually done in companies with different members of a team needed at different points, basically. So so that, that part of it I thought was super important. When the pandemic hit and companies were forced to go remote, you were already working remote, yeah, is that right? exactly. So initially, um, the company that I was with had kind of tested their the remote waters in 2012 because I was living in London and they made the whole office uh, work remotely for three, four weeks. So, and then after that, we, we kind of became much more open to remote. Plus there was a lot of just people in different uh, offices, time zones over time. I think as, as I worked with more and more people in larger teams, it just became wider and wider anyway. And then at some point I realized that actually I didn't need to be in the office at all. And for that matter, I didn't need to be in London at all. <laughs> And and moved moved to Warsaw actually. So so it's interesting how something that you just tried out and then to realize oh wait a second, <laughs> and you did that. Um, you didn't do that be- because you guys were forced to do that. You did that to try things out and see what yeah was absolutely. Possible. I mean, this was I moved to Poland in twenty eighteen, early twenty eighteen. And you're so you're working with teams all around the world. The last iteration, at least there, was uh, working with three teams, people in nine locations across thirteen time zones. Um, so people, you know, from Boston to Bali, pretty much. I think I actually, at one point, it was Bali because the the guy from one of the guys from India went out to Bali to live and work there for a, like half a year or something with his fiance. So, so it was quite a yeah. And he figured, stayed. Yeah, figured it was a good place to to you know hang out for a while. Yeah. So it, it I realized then that like there there were certain additional constraints around like for example when everyone can meet or when certain subgroups can meet and that kind of thing. But there also were a lot of benefits in trying to organize the work in such a way that you didn't need to meet, or if you do meet, it actually is a super impactful meeting. And that's kind of how I was perceiving it, I think, at the time. So when you look back at that 2012 testing things out in in England or London, to the point to where you moved, you thought, oh, this works, I'm going to move to Warsaw, all the way to now, or then the pandemic hits, and it's this is a forced thing for a lot of people. So this is happening at global scale. Now, even two years later, I know that you write a lot in, in the book, but if you were just to just to give yourself, your young self, a few pieces of advice to get you going on in the right direction, to ask the right questions, as you said, <laughs> what would you say? I mean, I think the key thing that I learned, especially seeing everyone else go remote, or at least a lot of people go remote, and also look, paying attention to my own experience is that the nonverbal aspects of communication, especially tone of voice, for example, and tone in general, communicates a lot in terms of like emotional state. And this is this happens in meetings regardless of whether they're online or remote or not. And I think the thing with remote is that it really changes the 
the weighting or the importance of of these kind of three basic building blocks of like tone of voice of of the nonverbal communication and then like the content of the message i don't think even to be completely honest i think even in march 2020 i don't think i was completely aware of that yet whereas it would have been useful to, <laughs> to be aware of that earlier i think or at least explicitly i mean i, I think it, i think i kind of felt it at some level definitely knew that it was possible to work well together with everyone being remote but i think that that particular nuance was was something that yeah i think i've grown to realize and i think certainly the the research has helped too so so when you think about the nonverbal piece i'm really curious like you said even march you probably didn't read uh, realize the full impact of that what that means in terms of remote work was there was there an example that you can give us where it kind of hit you hard i mean i know that you said you grew into it but maybe there's a a time that you really you thought oh wait a second there's something here and what am i going to do about it i think it's most apparent where a lot of certainly i think I, i moved quite a bit more to to let's say slack and and that, those kind of things i mean I, I was using them before but i think when you are communicating purely textually there still is tone in what you write but it, it's very context dependent so like the same words can be very can mean very different things uh depending on exactly everything else that's said around them so depending on whether you're you know using irony or sarcasm or you actually mean it directly anything you know any of the more nuanced emotions around you know why why someone is saying something figuring out the motivation in a particular turn of phrase you, you basically you didn't have the the audio component or even or the visual component of of you know how their how their body responded to, <laughs> to something and possibly even going you know even even lower into the into the into the brain so to speak like the you know the basic fight and flight reactions <laughs> that kind of thing like thinking thinking in terms of emotional state when you are communicating in a email or in a in a slack message or something i mean that it's important to remember that that's there regardless of whether you want to pay attention to it and then also, conversely, um, you have the option of doing doing a call, speaking with someone to make sure that you do have at least the tone of voice <laughs> when you're speaking with someone. Right. <laughs> so to pick and choose kind of when, when you decide to pick up the phone versus Slack, or if you read something in Slack and react to it or have a certain perception to maybe pick up the phone and check to see if what you perceived was actually on track. So there's a couple of things I'm listening to you. And, and I wish I knew where this research was. I'll have to ask around. I've heard that uh, that we, our brains, or we perceive written messages. So like on Slack, this is uh, this is research that's been done during the pandemic, um, a tone neg- more negative than what we mean. So someone will read what we wrote and, and perceive a tone more negative than what we actually meant. There's something in there. So, and often when we're face to face, we spend a lot more time tapping into these nonverbals and tone and voice. And then when we don't have that, and we don't, and we're just reading, we're still in making this stuff up in our minds, what we perceive the person <laughs> saying, how they're saying in their time, their emotions and, and whatnot. So think about, I was just thinking about a question. Let's say I say, why did you do it that way? Or I could say, Hey, why did you do it that way? <laughs> you know? And it's the same question, but one's like really a little bit more with curiosity and the other one is judgmental. And when if someone writes that in Slack, we don't know which way they mean. And we automatically perceive, perceive we tend to perceive more. Exactly. Negative. Yeah. I've, I've heard of that too. I mean, in that particular case, you, you did have the word, hey, in the less, let's say, confrontational form, but then <laughs> of, the, of the same question, basically. But it, yeah, it depends on how... Like like these these slight because all you really have to go on is diction is word choice when you're when you're when you're <laughs> when you're writing asynchronously I guess whereas um, yeah and these it could be very subtle and people can miss it so you can even in fact do it in a way that is very kind of friendly and just asking but it might be read <laughs> despite your best effort as confrontational anyway right but it's harder to get that wrong if you do have voice if you do have a visual that kind of thing so so what do you tell teams like with your team when you're working with your team and knowing that it's will might happen how how do you work with your team to work with them to work with the potential emotions and and perceive misperceptions or misunderstandings 
I, I mean, I think part of it is what you mentioned already in terms of choosing the right tool for the message, choosing the right medium for the message uh, or the conversation, uh, depending on whether it is a message or a conversation. I think overall with new relationships, especially, it's better to have more layers at the same time of, of that communication. So if, if, if you can in person, if not in video, at least for some time until you get some kind of a rhythm with, with a new group of people or a new individual. And then over time, you can kind of work out what actually is, is the most convenient. I think also, just to completely argue against myself, the, so I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of stress on, for example, being on video, uh, in, in calls, uh, in remote calls, uh, and I think there's a lot to be said, especially especially when working with with people who are introverts, uh, as often developers are. Um, like I think it, there's there's something to be said for just doing audio only discussions because they they still have a lot of they have a lot of that emotional depth, but at the same time you don't feel quite so. I don't know, put on the spot maybe, <laughs> or it's more kind of freeing in a certain way. Plus you can do things like work with whiteboards or, or do other things at the same time when it's just audio only. So they don't have feel like the f- total focus is on them, but more on the content on what the work is. And so it makes it exactly, easier. Exactly. To or with, with voice only the emotion behind it too. So you still have the content and also the, let's say emotional layer, but you aren't really worried if you've, you know, got a, I don't know, <laughs> fly landing on your nose or something. <laughs> well, you know, it's, I love how you say that, you know, the emotions are going to be there whether you like it or not, because often don't bring the emotions to work. Well, we are emotional beings that's there whether we like it or not. So either we work with it or it's going to, it's going to influence anyway. So how you just kind of look at, that is part of the process that is part of who we are. And so what do we do with that? You know, how do we work with each other and, and um, help each other as a team, knowing that emotions are part of the process. In your book, you have, you look at managing remote teams and you look mainly at three different areas that you're helping people to rethink so that they can approach remote work more effectively, perhaps, and from a more human perspective, but as well as being productive, this is important, right? And so you divide it into productivity and alignment. And you also talk about how to work with meetings in your book and your structure. I found it really helpful. But going back to more at the beginning, you had a couple of um, statements in there I was that made me curious. But one of them was, you talked about how over time, that you seem to recognize that you were more a facilitator than a manager. I would love to hear your perspective on this because I have this little theory. Um, I sometimes have these crazy theories that I think one of the biggest leadership skills we need to work on besides listening is this facilitator role also to help the team to listen and communicate with each other. So I wondered if that was, you know, how you saw that or how you saw being a facilitator versus being a manager. I think it largely comes down to the nature of more complex work like software, but I think it applies to other places where there's a lot of different people, different perspective, different parts where the the key insight can come from anywhere and from anyone also. Uh, it doesn't matter where, where people are in the hierarchy <laughs> or, or something like that. And, and I think because it is, it is, it is creative analytical work, um, being able to kind of corral the team and facilitate them to go in the direction that everyone kind of wants to go. And that, to me, that's, that's different than kind of the classic management kind of, I don't know, organizing work breakdown structure deadlines and <laughs> and and then holding people to things that they said and, and that kind of thing like it's like all, to some extent that's still needed it's it's less important than this ability to at the right time get as much get, get people to show up in the best possible way with as much of themselves as they can in their work that's more the angle that I that I try to 
take uh, with with groups of people, basically. And uh, in practice, this means that I I like to work more in a in a in a workshop format more than most people, I guess, within within a company when I'm within a company. Because there's many different types of meetings. You don't necessarily need to be doing workshops all the time. And I think, you know, it's also possible to have too many, but where but yeah, but so the the idea of what I mean by workshop here is basically a meeting where you do the work in the meeting together and it's organized that way, kind of by, by design basically. That meeting design and that facilitation design, it's basically creating a, a structure for the group to come together and basically figure out what the best way of doing something is uh, or how how to solve a particular problem or yeah it, like and i think that is much more facilitation than it is kind of classic management type stuff when you think about let's say meetings or i'm going to use this word managing you know your teams or team teams it sounds like you do multiple it teams depends. I mean, then yeah. Yeah. depends on the project right <laughs> but you have multiple situations where you have different groups yeah. of people that need to come together. Then the quote meeting is not your traditional type of meeting where you have this basic, you know, some of these old types, you know, where you just have the, the different topics and either people are updating or they're, I don't know, making a decision or whatever. But what you're talking about is creating a space where you bring people together with a common goal or a common something, and then you let them work at the same time during that space in a very exactly. structured way. Perhaps you can give an example of a meeting or a way you would structure a workshop or a sure. Review. So for example, something like a like a kickoff or or something like that. I mean, so I I'm a huge fan of whiteboards, uh, of online whiteboards, Miro, Mural, uh, that whole category because they allow you to allow you to create a space where everyone participates, even if they aren't speaking. And the goal, I think, during something like a, especially a, a kickoff where you're starting a new topic, everybody's coming with a slightly different perspective, slightly different set of facts they know, and you're trying to, as quickly as possible, get everyone to share everything that's relevant and then organize it, basically. <laughs> the way that I very intentionally try to steer away from is this kind of style where somebody does a PowerPoint and then does that for a while, <laughs> and then somebody else does a power, another PowerPoint and does that for a while. In contrast, if you have a series of activities focused on kind of first uh, opening up, this is kind of following... Uh, game storming. I'm a big fan of game storming. Um, following their their style, where first you kind of open up and explore the whole area, then you dig into what it is that that you're that you're doing in various ways. So there's different types of games or structures that you use to do that, and then and then finally uh, you kind of go and converge and decide on okay, so what are we doing next? How are we taking this forward? Uh, and and taking it from there. And I think especially in in situations where there's a lot of uncertainty, like at the start of a software project, it really helps to have something a little bit more tangible, even if it's a post-it, <laughs> to, to keep track of different ideas. And then you can, on one hand, map out how they relate to each other, but also talk about it, if need be, how you feel about it. <laughs> so, and different, how to how to work with wh- whatever the topic is. I mean, you're, I mean, typically when when you, when you are creating software, you need to figure out what the right structure of it is so that it actually addresses the problem that you want correctly, which, yeah, so there's a lot of kind of abstract bits that are all over the place. But at the same time, ultimately, the point here isn't so much the visual side of it as much as the useful conversation and the focused conversation that you have around things that that you discover as you're discovering them. I can imagine that that inter- being in that style helps not only um, the team to get clear, to explore, to be creative, but also to get clear and then to get focused, while at the same time getting to know each other. So it's helping to build some relationships, even if not everyone's always talking out loud. And it sounds like you do a lot of Mm -hmm. audio because some people write more. And it sounds like it also gives people a chance to think as well as to express themselves in different ways, whether it's this they say something out loud or they write something, but then they can also check in with each other for clarity and in, in going in a certain direction. And it's, it sounds like, it's more, definitely like fun. more fun. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> definitely fun. 
See, it can absolutely, be, meetings absolutely. can be fun. They can be fun. And in fact, <laughs> in my opinion, they should be fun. Um, and if they're not fun, then probably you don't need a meeting. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. it is, it is largely kind of a, kind of a design question. And a lot of it's also not just about kind of conversation that I as the facilitator drive, but about these kind of confrontation between the participants with each other. And then deciding, oh, does that go here? Or does that go there? Or does it make sense to do this first and then that? Or, And then to basically create this space for this discussion where all of it ties with each of them individually. So there's this kind of social connection, but also with the actual bits and pieces of the topic that we're, that we're talking about to kind of analyze it together. And then the nice, the nice outcome of the whole thing is that once the once the meeting ends is that you with well with literally the same picture <laughs> because you've cut the you've cut the the whiteboard which which was kind of the result of the group's work so the same perspective but also uh you've had this this experience this 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 extended conversation throughout the workshop you know had lots of different threads started and and you know hopefully finished but maybe not and at least you're identifying, in the case of a kickoff meeting, for example, you're identifying useful questions. Are there any questions behind the question that you need to ask looking for, you know, the the unknown unknowns <laughs> that you might want to at least try to explicitly try to identify at the beginning of something like a project, especially if you're doing something totally new that you've never done before or that's never been done before full stop, which sometimes is the case. Yeah, it's it's kind of, it's a way to bring that together and make it more collaborative, but also I think more concrete. And if I may add a few layers, I'm making some assumptions here just from conversations and questions that I get in my communication workshops when I'm working in tech. Since you're working across cultures, you have people, a lot of people mm -hmm. who are working in their second language. And so sometimes that creates a little bit of insecurity on whether I'm Absolutely. understood or not, because I'm not able to express myself in the same way I can in my own language. And what you said in terms of kickoff, sometimes there's new people there, yeah. you know, who don't know things. So there's some insecurity there. Also here often, you know, how can I be more confident or come across more confident? And this worry about um, having to say something, but you get the focus off the person directly, but more focused on us working together. The we part, it seems like in this type of situation, which I can imagine helps take that pressure off so that people can work better and because they're, they can feel safer. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it, it, because you're working on multiple mediums too, you know, they can draw stuff, they can pull off images off of the web if they want. <laughs> they can, like it doesn't, you don't, only need to communicate in a foreign language. Uh, there's many ways that you can communicate in this kind of a workshop, as long as you're all aiming to finish the meeting and achieve the purpose that you set. How, how you do it is, is up to, to, obviously, to some extent, the facilitator, the design of this, the facilitator. But then, you know, during the meeting, it can also surprise everyone <laughs> where, where something goes. So, yeah. yeah. We love surprises. Not everyone <laughs> well, does, not everyone, yeah. but I love surprises. Not everyone does. But <laughs> one of the things also, when I was reading your book, you talked about that it's really, really important to have a common definition of mm -hmm. quote unquote done. What does done mean in our project? And having something objective and how this is so important to have this, have people talk about it in the beginning so that people, so that the group knows, is clear with each other what that means. How did you come to this thought? It's not just an idea, it's even more than an idea, but it's yeah, really important. Yeah. So it's, message. I mean, this is, this is very much drawing on, I guess, drawing on, let's say the, the scrum and agile wave of working. And that's, that's a term that I certainly learned there. I think. What I've seen, I mean, recently I did did a workshop around this with a team that I that I started with, and um, I think the the way that I saw that this was needed was that they they had a they had a kind of a, a a kanban board of exactly where things were going. So basically, you have the the columns for different states of a workflow, and then you've got post its signifying bits of work that you that you move across, and then even. Among the team members themselves, they weren't sure whether, based on what they knew about the state of a particular thing they were working on, whether it should be in in this column or in that column. <laughs> 
if it's not clear what done is also there's a lot of this kind of wiggle room in term in interpretive wiggle room of like i'm kind of done like uh, you know i don't really need to write the technical documentation right now or oh we'll 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 deal with that when when it goes to that other team that puts it into production or or something and then that's the th- that's the kind of thing where if it isn't agreed by everyone then it means that that wiggle room is exactly the thing that ends up causing all kinds of delays, lack of clarity, things take a lot longer than expected to actually really finish it uh, based on, let's say, slightly more objective measures. And I think it doesn't really matter so much what that definition from a general point of view, but it what does matter is that the team defines it and they hold themselves accountable to it. Which, which is a lot of, to do with the communication piece and really listening. So it's not just um, my idea, your idea, but what is our, where where are we taking things? It's moving from yeah. the individual to the team. Yeah, exactly, focus. exactly. And uh, I think the other the other place where this ends up uh, getting abused is uh, if if it's not clear what that definition of done is, then uh, I think the tendency is to load up teams with more and more work. It, it's hard to then plan how much you can actually do because you don't really know when you're done what you have or how much, how quickly you can, let's say, finish what you have. Therefore, you take on or promise a lot more and then you become overloaded. <laughs> so, so it's, it's something that, yeah, like if you, if you, it's just a question of agreeing those like goalposts where they are and, and then, and then sticking to them uh, together, I think that's the that that's the that's the most important part of it. And also, what about the expectations of the senior management in that process? Because you hear that often. You know, we have these plans, but then you go into conversations and to discussions with the executive level, and they have more. <laughs> um, sometimes uh, the the expectations might be differently different. Yeah, yeah. Clear. I mean, the expectations can can be yeah can be quite varied. I mean, I think ultimately, then the main thing a, a good definition of done does from from that perspective is that it then becomes a question about resourcing and not about whether or not a team is underperforming. Because if you know how much a team can do, and it's more or less doing that amount, let's say every week or every month or whatever the time unit is, if they start trying to load on a year's worth of work and expect it to be done next month, <laughs> then yeah, like that's not a team not doing what I want. <laughs> that, that's a team that should have you know a whole bunch of other teams also working alongside them to do what you want and i think part of that is is yeah is, is being clear with that let's say boundary of when something's done and 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 what's what's reasonable that that uh, connects to i highlighted a few areas um that i'm bringing up but what you're saying right now is i'm going to bridge over to something that you said in terms of the types of question that should be asked that you hear often people are in remote work, how do we know our people are working? That question would be better to be rephrased as how do we know our teams are finishing anything, which is this mm-hmm. done piece you were talking about. But you, you said even more importantly, can anything be done to help them finish more, which mm-hmm. is the resources piece? It's yeah, so it's it's yeah. both the external resources, but then also within within the team, how can the team itself organize themselves in the best possible way, the way that they work to to get things done quickly. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it it, it goes back to that insight from Amy Edmondson, which I quote, was like, that, you know, most people when they show up for work, like they, they don't go there to go and do a bad job, right? They, they, they don't, like they, they go there because they want to do something and they want to enjoy doing it and, and they want to contribute. You, on the whole, I mean, obviously there's exceptions, but on the whole, that's the case. And I think it's better to work from that assumption. It's my role as a as a, as a facilitator is to help them do that as a, as a group, because then you know there could be differences between people. There, you know, there are all kinds of coordination things. I mean, there's 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 lots of spaces in between that need to uh, the that that can be optimized. And then plus each person, you know, help each person develop enough self-awareness to be able to, you know, make the most of, of the, the time and energy that they have. And speaking of energy, I'd love to hear more about your, how you pay attention to energy in your team. 
Because you said that energy management trumps time management. How do you listen to the energy in your team versus the time management? How do you manage the energy? You ask them. (laughs) Isn't this so simple? It it, it literally is. (laughs) Like no no high-tech solution needed. And I think the, the key thing is that you make it okay to talk about that and for them to also talk amongst themselves about, you know, when the best time to do something is together or what are, you know, the best times of day that I like doing things or from the point of view of, of, you know, a larger team or teams working together, again, depending on the type of work, but certainly in a software context, like it, what matters is the long-term month, month level, what happens, but whether, whether you, you know, do something at 11 or at 2 p.m., it doesn't make that much of a difference, I think, from a managerial perspective, or at least it shouldn't, but it could make a big difference in terms of how effectively that time is spent when you've got multiple people and trying to get them to coordinate that, uh, I think, is the key part there. And I think the other half of this is is rest. It's, it's, it's one of these kind of paradoxes that, like, to me at least, that people who are highly productive are usually the ones that are well-rested. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it, it, you know, getting, I mean, it's more just about paying attention to yourself and when, when it makes sense to actually just, you know, take a, take a five minute break, take, cut yourself loose and, and end early, go for a vacation. Like that might actually be the most productive way to spend your time possible. That's just a question of paying attention to you know your own kind of productivity, whether your attention is is focused, <laughs> whether things like that, and and also again making it okay to do that. I think the trap in terms of time management that a lot of people implicitly fall into is you know there's you know eight hours in every workday. I've got to sit at my computer. I mean, I, I I guess you can see this especially at the beginning of the pandemic when people who weren't typically remote working started remote working. Like they were still very much trying to replicate the behavior of the office at their home. So, you know, nine to five, they'd sit at their computer and they would feel an obligation to do that without necessarily questioning, like, is that really the best way to be productive, both myself and also in the context of my team? And maybe it is like, you know, for something like a customer service team or something, I could imagine that, yeah, you you do need to be available in there at certain business hours, for example. But then there's other types of work where that isn't necessarily the case at all. Your most productive people being, you know, at peak peak mental performance at 1 a.m. <laughs> and, uh, in, in your time zone, right? But then if if the guy who works with them is in Bali, then that's fine, right? So <laughs> like it there's there's all these different pieces of the puzzle that you with each team, especially if you've got a lot of time zones that you can that you piece together and then try to figure out what the what the best way for the team to work together is in terms of timing and cadence and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I, I don't know about you, but I know that when I am have to come up with a new, I don't know, a workshop format or a new idea, I, mean, I can sit at my computer and try to write, but actually that's not when it comes. I usually have to move and think about things for a while and then it just comes out. It's not, if I sit at my desk, kind of I, actually, I don't do as well as <laughs> if I'm moving around, you know, digging in my yard or garden or whatever, then um, that's usually when that stuff starts to come together. Then I'll grab a piece of paper, write some notes down, and then it just flows out. Yeah, I think I think pre-pandemic, one of my favorite meeting formats was a walking meeting. And I did that with yeah. uh, lots of people that you actually go for a walk, intentionally leave the office, go for a walk around the area. And talk about work, but like just the simple fact that you're walking kind of <laughs> seemed to just make it easier to flow and to think. And you've got, you know, all these mm-hmm. things like like breathing and your brain firing on all cylinders <laughs> and all of that, that it, it it actually felt like they were more productive. And plus you got out in front of a computer for a bit, which was good. So a screen. I still do that sometimes with people, but with um, cell yeah. phones, we walk. <laughs> we made walk. Yeah. <laughs> if you wanted leaders to know something really important with what you've learned with remote work, and would like to get a message across to leaders and 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 in organizations, you know, about this work, and perhaps it has something to do with communication or listening, or it doesn't. What would be important for them to know? I think first of all, I think one thing is that. 
the the yeah facilitation I think is a lot more important than than meets the eye as we as we talked about already. <laughs> so I think that's definitely kind of up there in terms of what I'd like more more people to know and take into account. But also, I think the other the other thing, at least in the, in the context of meetings, certainly is like there's. I think meetings are very nuanced, and I think there's this one of the strands of the whole remote work discussion. I think post pandemic is like you know go async, cancel all your meetings. Meetings suck. <laughs> there is like there is some truth to that. I'm not saying that's not the case, but I think there I, I think the reality is a lot more nuanced about what meetings are and when they work and when they don't, um, and and also how. It, how they work in the context of the particular people or teams that you're working with. That this, yeah, this this knee like it is actually a knee jerk reaction that meetings are bad, in my opinion. <laughs> so there can be good meetings, but then that that requires some design and thought on the organizer, which I think most people aren't even aware of. I guess. Can you give me some examples? Really common pattern, I think that in terms of meetings that I think is is quite difficult is 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 that there's just a need for a lot of status meetings, especially in larger companies. There in that case, like there's the assumption that meetings are the only way to communicate status or it it or at least organizing a meeting creates a certain um creates a certain deadline, creates a certain pressure, possibly an element of accountability. Uh but you know, it's worth questioning whether that's actually the case, whether there's other ways you can communicate interim status, use things like dashboards, uh, use things like, yeah, some type of visual way of indicating of what's going on. <laughs> um, so, and by doing that, thinking it through in terms of what you actually care about, what you are hoping to achieve, what outcomes you're trying to achieve, or organizing your work that way, you don't actually need to have that many meetings. That's on one hand, let's say, canceling meetings you don't actually feel are that productive. And then on the other hand, yeah, like there's even amongst, uh, even amongst technical people, like if, I mean, I had this one situation where, where uh, we had a couple of regular meetings, which we canceled for a while and then uh, for, for one team and they, you know, after after two weeks, they came back and most of them were saying, no, 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 we need this. <laughs> we need this meeting. We need to talk about what, you know, what's happening. And, you know, in this kind of standard agile format. And so even though there was one or two people who were vocally kind of arguing against it initially, when it went away, it turned out that actually you need, you needed this get together just to make sure that everyone was working towards the goal that we had decided short term and that they weren't stepping on each other's toes. Because otherwise, if they didn't have the meeting, then they would do that if they were just sitting there each working individually. It really does depend, I guess, exactly on how it's done and whether it like wh- whether it subjectively feels like it's 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 achieving its goals, uh, the meeting, and yeah, whether it's helpful. Like if it's not helpful, if it's not doing what it's meant to be doing, then by all means cancel it. But that doesn't mean that you should go and completely cancel every meeting you have. <laughs> and it could be that like a meeting that people have that that maybe it's parts of that meeting that are what are needed. Maybe not everything that was a part of that meeting. So what you talk about in terms of being really clear, of what what purpose does it does it fulfill? What's the intention here? And maybe we still have it on a regular basis, but maybe it's structured in a different way or a different time. You maybe it's you know fifteen minutes versus you know an hour or whatever. But to really take the time to to plan and think about it and check in and um and to help people be prepared before um, the meeting also. Yeah, I mean, I, I like um, the rule of thumb that the the amount of time you spend in the meeting, half of that you should spend and an before the meeting preparing for it, and then half of an, another. So, for example, if it's an hour long meeting, you should spend half an hour preparing for that meeting. And then after the meeting, you should spend half an hour following up to making sure that whatever was agreed <laughs> actually happened. Um, and yeah, I think I think that's that's the bit that kind of tends to be easy to forget uh, that yeah that the meeting's there for the, the, at least the typical meeting is there for that purpose. If it's not like a workshop, 
I had a, a, a client who tried something. I hadn't heard this before, so maybe this is something <laughs> for you. But this was someone who is a, a high performer and often by, you know, we're busy getting things done and we don't take time to reflect back on what we get done. And even though we're getting a lot done, um, we don't think our brain doesn't think we're getting things done because we never take time to to stop and and notice, right? Often with with people like that, I'll suggest to do that like once a week on you know on Friday just to look back, just to so that you know that things are getting done and your brain recognizes this. And he started doing this after every meeting, <laughs> so he would write down what was accomplished after every meeting just to start noticing which meetings were doing what and how. He said it was really really interesting and it helped him to be more to get better at his meetings also to measure what was what was working what wasn't what did that mean for him you know and also probably help i'm assuming with the follow through and i thought oh that's really that's kind of interesting i don't know if you want to take how much time he took he probably just took like a minute or two but it's uh, interesting to pay attention to actually what was what happened and what am i pulling out of this and added nuance at least every so often to do it so, Luke, um, is there a question that I have not asked you that I, that you think would be really great for me to ask you? I think one of the things that also, just in terms of listening, since since we're focusing on listening, I think one of the things that really distorts listening is 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 the hierarchy within a company. I, I think it's meant to be a fil- filtering mechanism. There's a way that it can filter in a good way and in a bad way, <laughs> and I think. When it filters in a bad way, it, it can make it difficult to to listen. It's supposed to be there's a filter. It, yeah. So I mean, I, I mean, this is very company culture specific. So I think there's there's some company cultures that are very hierarchical, and then there's some that are very flat. And I think both uh, both kind of extremes have their place. I think from a from a listening perspective, and especially how groups of people work together. If you do have a lot of hierarchy, then just be aware that it can filter out important voices or data points. There's a story, I think it was at the beginning beginning of Obamacare, uh, when they launched the uh, the website, uh, health healthcare.gov, I think it was. And they were they were struggling with the with the site and you know to keep it up, keep it keep it up and running. And uh, when the guy who was uh, brought in by Obama to become the CTO. He kind of created this new, the CTO of the government um, started asking, he finally identified, started talking to the agency that was handling the, the site. And, uh, and initially he talked at the kind of the top level, you know, executive level, then like the next level down and the next level down. And all of it, at each level, he kept realizing that, none of these people still really understood where the problem is. (laughs) And it wasn't until he got to, I think it was like six levels down or something where he identified the the people working for the subcontractors that were actually working with the website that actually knew what was going on that told him how they think the problem should be fixed. And, and then, and then this guy went back to the top of the company and said, "Well, this is how I think the problem should be fixed. That's what they say." And then, yeah, and then basically, once they once they understood the problem, they could they they were able to solve it really quickly. So I think that's kind of a good example of hierarchy serving, kind of fil- filtering out something that's actually important. <laughs> so, and it took someone with initiative to go and to have the patience to go from level to awesome. level to level to level, exactly. and to to get there. And to take it back up, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know, yeah. the at each level within within a company, the, like the you're at a certain level of altitude, and you're you know you're responsible for the things that are closest to you and the things you see, and and that's fine. But yeah, I think it's just it it is kind of a a bias if you if you start to lean in too much to to a hierarchy, and uh, yeah, I, th- I think the other potential trap there is that it can be a way to filter out uncomfortable messages in particular, right? But maybe if people have that in mind before they can <laughs> prevent, <laughs> so it doesn't get have to get that far, even yeah. though that happens, I think, really often, yeah. unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So that our listeners know, how can they get your book? And then you also maybe just briefly talk about sure. your podcast, where people can learn more about sure, sure. work. Um, so the 
the the book's available on Amazon and uh, also in paperback form at various uh, at various booksellers and uh, and the podcast the main website for the podcast is managingremoteteams.co and cover lots of topics that are related to remote work some very specifically remote work some going into more uh ancillary but related topics <laughs> like i guess you know how, how leadership is different in a remote context or something it's it's uh or yeah culture or hiring or all, all kinds of other factors that uh were changing uh certainly changed a lot over the last two years and uh you can kind of see that in the in the evolution of the the topics and yeah that's that's pretty much uh what the podcast is about we'll add the link to the book and the um, podcast in the notes for anybody who's listening. And I'm sure if anybody's listening and, and you can't find your answer, <laughs> your question answered, I'm sure you can reach out. Um, and because even as we're doing podcasts, we love hearing from, from our audience to know um, what to talk about. <laughs> so <laughs> absolutely. Um, it's been such a pleasure to have you on this podcast. And I, Loved your book and I will read it again. <laughs> and I'm sure those of you, even, you know, for a lot of people who are listening to this, who are also are in the software industry or in the tech industry will really enjoy it. But plus, even if you're not, um, and you're looking at how to balance, um, you know, in face to face versus remote sync and async, it's a good, it's a really good go to resource to help, um, help you to focus. So thank you, Luke, for being on this podcast. I am your host, Raquel Ark, an American podcasting from Germany, and this is Listen In. Join this series of conversations with inspiring scientists, leaders, and authors about listening as a surprising superpower that is not always as easy as it seems. Believe me, I know, and I've been learning and will continue to learn, and I hope that this podcast will help you find practical ways to help others listen better while you become better at leading people catalyzing collaboration, transforming conflict, building trust and engagement. And I'll tell you, when really good listening happens, then the entire group, including you, can feel energized and inspired. So sit back and enjoy listening beyond what we typically think of.